0: Built Not Born, episode 27. I'm Joe Chickarone. Thank you for joining us. Built Not Born is the podcast where each episode, we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guests have made their impact from the boardroom to the battlefield, from the jujitsu mat to the field of medicine. Today's guest is Jessica Berman, MD, Dr. Jessica Berman is a board-certified oncologist and hematologist practicing in the Philadelphia area at Abington Hematology Oncology Associates. Dr. Berman, a native of Manalapan, New Jersey, is a graduate of Franklin and Marshall with a degree in English and biology. Dr. Berman attended medical school at UMDNJ in New Jersey. She did both her residency and her fellowship training in hematology and medical oncology at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. Dr. Berman treats patients at Jefferson's Abington Memorial Hospital, Holy Redeemer Hospital, and Chestnut Hill Hospital. Her areas of expertise and interest are breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, and other gastrointestinal cancers, lymphoma, multiple myoma, benign conditions such as anemia and iron deficiency. In our conversation today, Dr. Berman and I discuss why it's so important for everyone to stay a step ahead of cancer by taking some simple steps like prevention, early screening, and if needed, early treatment. We discuss the importance of diet and exercise. We get into what age you need to get screened for common cancers and what to do if you have a family history. Dr. Berman was kind enough to let me conduct a Q&A with her. I gathered some questions from podcast listeners and some previous podcast guests. I was so excited when Dr. Berman agreed to come on the show. She knows the subject matter inside out. She is a multiple Best of Philly Magazine winner for Best in Oncology. It's hard to find anyone on the planet that cancer has not touched in some way. Everyone has a parent, a grandparent, a brother, an uncle, a sister, a friend, a coworker that has battled some form of cancer in their lives. So, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come? Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jessica Berman, board certified hematologist and oncologist, multiple best affiliate winner for oncology, as she helps us stay a step ahead of cancer. And remember, life is built, not born. Dr. Jessica Berman, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Joe, for having me.
0: We're excited to have you. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what- My
1: name is Jessica Berman. I'm a medical doctor. I am a medical hematologist and oncologist. I work in a community-based oncology group out of Abington, Pennsylvania. I round and I am affiliated with several different hospitals in the area, Abington Memorial Hospital, now Jefferson, Abington Jefferson Hospital, Holy Redeemer Hospital, and Chestnut Hill Hospital. I'm in a community-based practice, which means that I see a lot of oncology patients that are with common cancers that we see in the community. I also see some benign hematology patients who have anemia or platelet issues or clotting issues, so I see a little bit of everything.
0: Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in central Jersey in a town called Manalapan, New Jersey, about halfway between New York City and Philadelphia, though I was always biased towards New York City growing up. Now I love all the Philly sports and, and the Philly area.
0: What was it like around the dinner table, say when you were 10 years old? Who was there? What was going on? Could you describe the scene?
1: my two parents and my younger sister, who's about five years younger than me. None of them are physicians.
0: How did you decide to become the first physician in your family?
1: This is an interesting story. I was sitting on my lifeguard stand the summer after my freshman year in college, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I was letting my mind wander, trying to decide what classes inspired me, what I really liked and what I could see myself studying and running through a list of all of the classes that I took at my undergrad, Franklin and Marshall. And I really couldn't come up with anything. And I thought to myself, gee, the the best thing that I had done all year was my first aid class that I had to take to renew my lifeguard certification this is what I really like. This is what inspired me. I should go into medicine and become a doctor. The very next day, I called up the registrar at my college and I switched into the pre-med classes. The rest
0: is history. How did you decide on oncology as your specialty?
1: I, I was very intrigued by the cancer that I had learned about in the lectures in medical school I really enjoyed just treating cancer patients. I, I thought it, it was fascinating and there were so many new things that were coming out that I would never be bored, which I'm not.
0: Now, I want to pivot a little bit here. Usually there's a bunch of uh, other questions I asked the, the podcast guests, but since I have a specialist like you on, what I wanted to do is go over some basic cancer facts and wanted to use the, the rest of the podcast to talk about the common types of cancer, a couple facts that you could help us. Decide when people should get screened, early screening detection. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. I would love to talk about cancer screening and what people can do for themselves, for their parents, for their family members to try to help prevent cancer.
0: You're hard-pressed to find anyone almost in the world that cancer hasn't affected. There's you know just everyone. Everyone has an uncle, a mom, a grandmom, a child. Like Everyone has someone that cancer-touched. So one of the facts I looked up at the CDC website, 2020, 600,000 people in the United States died from cancer compared to, this is from the CDC, 375,000 that died with COVID last year. So COVID taking all the oxygen out of the room. So 375,000 died of COVID, but it's almost double, 600,000 died from cancer. The first question I'd like to ask you, how can the average person increase their odds of not being in that group?
1: That's a great question because there are so many cases of cancer that are diagnosed and unfortunately many people have died from cancer. One of the best things that we can do is screen for many of the common cancers and have early detection. This can really help to minimize your risk of death. Other things that can help are lifestyle changes. There's over a third of cancer deaths that are caused by things that can be changed. Tobacco use, obesity, alcohol, diets that are low in fruits and vegetables, and the lack of activity. All of these things contribute to the development of cancer in patients.
0: Just to synthesize that here. So you're saying, first off, early screening, lifestyle changes. And you said it with diet lifestyle adjustments, you can Drop cancer by a third. Is that the number?
1: Yes, yes, that's what the statistics tell us. Which is truly astounding that there is so much that we can do to help prevent cancer.
0: So, next question: Could you describe the main types of cancer that the average person needs to be proactive and screen themselves for? Is there a group of? Is sure. there, is there a smaller subgroup that, like you know what, no matter who you are, these four, five, six, you really have to, you really have to be diligent at these.
1: Certainly. The most common cancers are breast cancer in women, prostate cancer in men, colon, lung cancer. Those are the four biggest cancers. There are screening tests that we have available for all of those in the right population, especially for those who are high risk. I can get into that.
0: Absolutely. I want to touch on each of those. You mentioned breast, prostate, colon, and lung. Just getting back to COVID, one of the things I pulled off of the website, so COVID-19 had more of an effect than shutting the schools down and the restaurants and the bars and killing the economy. Also, it affected cancer screening and treatment. Can you speak to that, how COVID-19 impacted early detection and screening last year?
1: Sure. As everybody knows, everything had shut down, especially in the spring of 2020. And that, unfortunately, included many medical centers. People were afraid to come in for their procedures. The the medicine was switched to telemedicine and virtual medicine, which doesn't help as many people when we need screening tests. For example, there were 20,000 less patients that were referred for colonoscopies in April of 2020 as compared to 2019. So there's a huge gap of those patients who didn't get screened during that time period. Unfortunately, cancer doesn't stop for COVID. And so the concern is, and what has happened is that patients are being diagnosed at a later stage or with larger tumors than they had been one year earlier, statistically speaking. That was a big problem in the last year. That hopefully is now starting to resolve itself.
0: People are afraid to go down to the big city hospitals, mm-hmm. even any hospital. They don't want to go near there because that's where they think higher risk of COVID. And but what that means is their screenings don't happen. When they do find it, it's later in the game, it's more advanced and harder to treat. Is that what Yes,
1: okay. exactly?
0: You mentioned the colon, prostate, breast, and lung. I'm just going to go one at a time. I'll start off with colon cancer. That it's actually something that I have. In my my family tree, Uh, there's people in my family that have colon cancer. I see a fact that, I'm just doing some research here, 50,000 people still die every year from colon cancer. That's wild. Yes.
1: It's it's incredible. That's
0: that's That's like a baseball stadium full. That's true or false? Colon cancer is one of the easiest cancers to treat if caught early. Is that true or false?
1: Absolutely. The colonoscopies is one of the mainstay of the cancer screening. For colon cancer, if a patient is found to have a small polyp or even a very early stage colon cancer, they have an excellent survival. Localized colorectal cancer has over a 90% five-year survival, whereas if it is not caught until the later stages or if it's metastasized, then the five-year survival is less than 20%.
0: When does the average person that doesn't have a family history, like there's no colon cancer in the family, when does the average person need to get screened?
1: Very recently, just in this past year, the American Cancer Society has changed their recommendations and other societies as well. They're now recommending that even without a family history, patients should start at the age of 45. So it used to be 50. But now when you turn 45, it is recommended to start your screening for colon cancer.
0: And then screening means what? You go to see a gastroenterologist and then they do perform a colonoscopy. Is that, is that basically what they're saying at 45?
1: So there are several different things. For somebody who's at average risk, this means that they don't have a first degree relative who has colon or rectal cancer, or they don't have even a second or third degree relative that had it at a younger age or they don't have any inflammatory bowel diseases such as Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. There's no personal history of, of any polyps or any issues or anemia or rectal bleeding or anything like that. So those patients are considered average risk. In that case, there can be several different options. of uh, Patient can have the colonoscopy or they can have the fecal based test, the stool, multi targeted stool DNA test, which is the Cologuard more commonly known as, or one of the more common tests, or the FIT tests, which are stool based tests. The colonoscopy, if they're at very low risk, they can have it at 45, and then they don't need to worry about it again until they turn 55. If everything is negative, they're good for 10 years. For the stool test, it is recommended to have rescreening in one to three years, depending on the test. So, this is something that they can talk about with their gastroenterologist or their primary care doctor about which test is recommended for them.
0: So, say someone has a family history, let's say their mom or dad have colon cancer, how do you determine when that person usually gets screened?
1: Their first degree relative, which would be a parent, if they had colon cancer, certainly under the age of 50, then they should start their screening 10 years earlier than the time that relative was diagnosed. So if the relative was diagnosed at the age of 48, they should start their screening at 38.
0: Here's taking the opposite side. When should someone stop getting screened for colon cancer as people age and maybe they're 75, 80? When should they stop getting screens?
1: That's a great question. And it actually comes up in my community practice quite often. In fact, just the other day, I had a patient who I was seeing for anemia, and he had some iron deficiency anemia. And I had to take a double take because I couldn't believe that this patient was 84 years old. He looked amazing. He was very fit. He had very few medical problems. And I was explaining to him that he has iron deficiency anemia, he has an issue, he needs to have a colonoscopy to make sure he doesn't have any bleeding. And he was trying to convince me that he's older than 75, and he doesn't need it. And his doctors told him that he never would. The thing is that he has a life expectancy, certainly at this point, more than five or possibly even 10 years at this point. So you really want to take into account the person's overall medical status. If somebody is 75, but has so many other medical problems, and unfortunately, they're probably have a life expectancy of less than five years, a screening colonoscopy is not going to be a high priority for them. But in somebody who's otherwise healthy and fit, and certainly if they're having symptoms or other issues, then we do recommend getting those colonoscopies even later on in life.
0: What would you say to the person who maybe is 10 to 15 years past the date they should have got screened for the first time? Now they're way like they're so far off the reservation and they're just afraid to set up the appointment. I don't even want to know what's going on. Like I'm out. What would you say to someone who's a decade past their first screening date? Is that common?
1: Yes, it, it is definitely a very common situation. I always tell them it's never too late, even if they have something, even if there's something that was brewing for several years it's never too late to get the screening to get the diagnosis because there's always something that we can do as far as treatment and having the knowledge of what the issue is or what the problem is always better than finding out when they have such extreme symptoms or other issues that by then it's too late we always try to catch it even if they're past their past due
0: Okay. Let's move on to breast cancer. I see where breast cancer is still the number one diagnosed cancer in women in the USA. What's the risk for the average woman to get breast cancer at some point in their life?
1: Unfortunately, breast cancer is just so common in the United States. There's over 250,000 cases each year. And there's a one in eight chance of a woman developing breast cancer in her lifetime. So if you have eight women in one room, one of those people will be diagnosed with breast cancer, statistically speaking.
0: When should a female with no family history of breast cancer or any cancer get screened for the first time?
1: This is a little bit controversial because not all of the cancer societies are having the same recommendations, but in general, somebody with no family history and no other history should start their screening at age 40 with mammograms. And we are seeing patients younger and younger getting diagnosed. So that is what what we do recommend.
0: So what if someone does have a family history of breast cancer? When should they start getting screened?
1: For somebody who has a family history of developing of breast cancer or who has a higher risk of developing breast cancer for other reasons, then they should start 10 years prior to when the youngest family member was diagnosed. Patients who are at very high risk should start at the age of 25 with mammograms and annual breast MRIs as well.
0: So that 10-year marker seems to be the magic number. So if you have, your parent has either colon cancer or breast cancer, you are getting screened, whatever age they got it, bottom line, you're going 10 years before they found it, and then that's when you're getting screened. That's like a good rule right, of thumb. Right,
1: exactly. Especially okay. if they were diagnosed earlier than the age of 50.
0: How about, what would make someone high risk for breast cancer besides a family history?
1: So somebody who's high risk would be somebody who has had radiation when they were under the age of 30. For example, somebody with a, certain lymphomas, can get chest radiation. Anybody who's had a history of an abnormal breast biopsy and specifically with something called lobular carcinoma in situ or LCIS or an atypical ductal hyperplasia. These are high risk markers that are seen in the breast for breast cancer in the future. Also, obviously if they've had a prior history of breast cancer. And if they have an early age when they start menstruating and a late age at menopause, those would put them at a higher risk of breast cancer as well.
0: When women go get their yearly mammogram, let's say how unpleasant it is, is there any other screening device that's a little more pleasant that would maybe make people want to go get They're examined in that, or is there anything on the horizon?
1: Unfortunately, the mammograms are definitely not too pleasant for the women. People who are considered at high risk for breast cancer, so those with the family history or those other things that I had mentioned, should also be getting annual breast MRIs. And they can alternate between breast MRIs and mammograms so that they're getting some kind of breast imaging every six months. Now, the breast MRIs is a longer test. Patients are in the machine for probably 30 to 45 minutes, but there, it's not as much compression as the mammograms are. So it's a little bit easier, but that's not being used right now in somebody who's at average risk.
0: For someone with no family history, how often should they get screened?
1: They should get a mammogram every year. Mm-hmm. So at, at this point, and again, there's no upper age limit. Similar to the colon cancer screening for women who are in their 80s and are otherwise healthy, we still recommend having annual mammograms.
0: So it's every year for breast cancer, even if you don't have a family history, but a colonoscopy, you do it and you can wait 10 years. What would make breast cancer the faster type of cancer than colon cancer?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. We know that colon cancers are very slow growing and typically take years to develop. Colon cancers start off as small polyps that are very easily seen in the colonoscopies, and they can take years until they grow and develop into a cancer. That's why for somebody who is at average risk, they don't recommend the colonoscopy more than every 10 years. On the other hand, breast cancers can be more aggressive, more fast-growing, and certainly can grow and develop are much harder to treat once they get bigger. So it is recommended to have the yearly mammogram so that we don't miss the small lesions that can be otherwise easily
0: cured. Thank you. All right. Switching back over to the to the boys' team, prostate cancer. A couple facts here <laughs> and then I have some some questions to follow up. One in nine men will have prostate cancer, true or false?
1: Yes, that's true. Pr- prostate cancer is also a very common disease that can affect many men. In fact, last year, there were over 190,000 men were diagnosed with prostate cancer in the US. So fortunately, it's not nearly as fatal. And there's 33,000 deaths last year from prostate cancer, which is still a lot, unfortunately.
0: How accurate is the PSA test from your perspective?
1: So the PSA is a very good test. However, it is a little bit controversial because There are different things that can affect the results. So the PSA number can be increased if somebody has an infection, if they've had certain urologic procedures or trauma or even ejaculation. And the PSA levels can be decreased from certain medications as well. It's always important to have a trend when you're looking at the PSA. And if you see the PSA level rising over time, then that would be more concerning than one specific number, especially if the number is just very barely elevated or minimally elevated.
0: When should the average guy get their first PSA test? When does that happen?
1: Average risk patients, we usually recommend at the age of 45 to get a PSA. And then depending on the level, if everything is fine and there's absolutely no issues or concerns for a false, negative, or positive then this should be repeated every one to three years, one to four years or so. Now for patients who are more at higher risk, so African-Americans, I'm talking about the U.S. here, anybody who has germline mutations with a BRCA gene mutation in their family history or other history of prostate cancer in family members, they should be screened every year
0: as they would be considered more high risk. The last of the four that you mentioned were lung cancer. So another true or false, lung cancer is the leading cause of all cancer deaths in the USA.
1: Yes, so unfortunately there are so many cases of lung cancer, over 200,000 and almost half of them, half of those patients will die within the year. So there's 135,000 deaths caused by lung cancer every year. So this is a huge number, unfortunately. It's more deaths from breast cancer colon prostate and brain cancers combined
0: so you're saying lung cancer kills more than all like breasts colon prostate and brain cancers combined lung cancer takes more people out
1: each year uh, yes yeah okay astounding uh, i know
0: yeah how concerned do you think like the average person needs to be who's never smoked about getting lung cancer like non-smoker ever Where where, where does that fall on the list of concerns for the average person yeah
1: There are definitely cases of lung cancer that occur in people, women more than men, who are non-smokers or never smokers. For some reason, that incidence has been increasing over the last several decades. So the risk or the incidence of lung cancer in non-smokers is between 4 and 20 per 100,000. So it's not a lot but it's about equivalent to your risk of cervical cancer or thyroid cancer and it's definitely prevalent
0: much more likely are say smokers to get lung cancer than non-smokers
1: smokers are probably 20 times more likely to to 20, develop 20 wow okay 20 yeah yeah now what i had said before with the non-smokers there's just over 10% these days of lung cancer are In patients who have never smoked. So unfortunately, because there's such high numbers and a high incidence of lung cancer, that number of never smokers does increase or has been increasing and does represent a lot of patients, but it's only about just over 10% of lung cancer in general.
0: So like at what age should someone just proactively get screened with no symptoms for lung cancer? And what kind of tests would you take? Like you do a colonoscopy for colon cancer, mammogram for breast cancer, what do you do for lung cancer?
1: So there was recently a trial that had come out, I guess, probably about 10 years ago now, that had shown that in patients who had been heavy smokers and who had quit, if they undergo a low dose CAT scan on a yearly basis, starting at the age of 55, the mortality from lung cancer can be decreased by about 20%. So that means that they are picking up these lung cancers in this high-risk population earlier and at a time in the disease when more treatments can be done for it.
0: How does the person get screened?
1: Yeah, so chest X-rays, unfortunately, are really not great screening tests. They don't have a very high sensitivity and there's lots of false negatives. But the low-dose CT scan or CAT scan is it, it's a CAT scan, but there's less radiation that's given off than in a standard CT scan. So, especially in people who are getting this every year now, who are screening, we don't want to bombard them with high doses of radiation with these scans. There's no IV contrast that we use. It really has been shown to be beneficial in early detection of of early stage lung cancers.
0: At what stage would you say a non-smoker should proactively get a low CT scan, like you said, when should that happen?
1: Unfortunately, I would not recommend it for a non-smoker. It This really is a test that we use for patients who had been heavy smokers or currently are still smokers, especially if they've had more than 30 pack years of tobacco. So unfortunately, it's not a recommendation for those who have never smoked.
0: Say that there's someone out there that has a uh, family member that just can't quit. From what I hear, quitting smoking is one of the hardest things to do. What's the best way you've seen in your practice to help a patient stop?
1: It really is one of the most difficult things to do. The the people who have had success are those who really want to quit. Certainly uh, patients that I see, once they get the diagnosis of lung cancer, many of them are just ready to stop, which is always a which is a a, a good thing. But even for patients before, they've gotten this diagnosis. It's setting a start date, absolutely, is one of the best things that patients can do. And using some of the nicotine replacements, such as gum, nicotine patch, those are very effective at helping to reduce the cravings for the nicotine and the smoking. And there are some other medications as well that patients can talk with their doctors about that can help them decrease the cravings of it. But there's no one great smoking cessation tool that I would recommend for everybody. But it's definitely a partnership between the patient and the doctor using what helps to work.
0: One thing you did not mention vaping, where would you put vaping in a smoking sensation?
1: Vaping can help patients to cut down again, it, it helps with the nicotine because there's nicotine in it. And so they get the craving for the vaping instead of the cigarettes. And there are less chemicals, in the vaping and the e-cigarettes than there are in regular cigarettes. As far as vaping and cancer goes, it's really too early to come to any real conclusions as to whether or not vaping increases the risk of lung cancer. However, we do know that there's lots of chemicals that are still in the e-cigarettes that, in the lab at least, can lead to cancer and can cause cancer. Because lung cancer can take up to 20 years to develop, we don't really have any true data right now on vaping and e-cigarettes and the risk of cancer, but we suspect that there probably will be an an issue with that in the future.
0: Wrapping up here, everyone should be on the lookout for colon cancer, breast cancer, we have prostate cancer and lung cancer. And just synthesize everything that you said, screening centers are safe post-COVID, It's a safe place to go. You get early screening, leads to early diagnosis, early detection, leads to more options, more treatment options, basically saves lives. Make sense?
1: Yes, that sums it up exactly. Yeah.
0: Switching gears here, when I heard that you would come on the podcast, I asked a bunch of previous guests and some podcast listeners, what questions would you have for a cancer expert? And I thought I'd get four or five. I got 50 cancer has touched so many people. And just about everyone has a a mom, a dad, an uncle, a cousin, a brother, a sister that has cancer or had cancer. What I'd like to do is throw some of the questions I received and you could share some of your knowledge. Is that good? Yes, that sounds great. In no particular order, how much is cancer preventable versus genetically predetermined?
1: That's a great question. Uh, Cancer is a very complex thing. It develops over multiple factors these are the host factors which are the genetics age gender metabolic state it's also influenced by environmental factors uv light radiation other carcinogens and then the diet and lifestyle factors obesity alcohol diets high in vegetables and fruits are better than those high in red meats and and smoked meats in general there are about 30 to 40%, or over a third, of cancers that can be minimized and decreased by some of these diet and lifestyle factors. Not all of it, but definitely a good portion of it.
0: Next question What's the first thing someone should do when they get a cancer diagnosis?
1: Certainly, getting a cancer diagnosis is one of the scariest things. Frequently, when they get the phone call or they're sitting in the doctor's office, it's more commonly a primary care doctor or perhaps the surgeon, and they may not have all of the information as far as the staging and exactly what type this is and certainly what the plan is going to be. The most important thing is to talk to your doctor and keep talking to the other doctors who you're referred to see, it can be really tough because I know everybody has a propensity to get the diagnosis of cancer. And these days go on Google and find out as much information as they can. But when they don't know exactly what their stage is and exactly what type, there's a lot of nuances to the cancer diagnosis. It can really be very overwhelming for patients. And I've seen that a lot. No doubt. So talk to your doctor.
0: Next question. What's the difference between chemo and radiation?
1: So those are two different modalities that we use to treat cancers. In in general, chemo is chemical therapy. It's a big general term for what traditionally in the past had been big intravenous bags of medications that are given to the patient, frequently makes them sick or lose their hair, Radiation is beams of radiation that's targeted and focused to a certain area. Whereas as chemotherapy is given systemically, meaning it goes all over the body to fight cancers that are maybe in the breast and the liver and the lungs, the radiation is really focused on one part of the body.
0: What are some of the new treatments under research? that you think will make a big difference.
1: These days, the buzzword in cancer and cancer treatments is the targeted therapy and the molecular therapy. Everyone's probably seen commercials for them on TV where certain breast cancer patients, for example, if they have estrogen receptor positive tumors, then they're treated a certain way. Certain lung cancers, if they have other markers that are positive, they can be given this pill or that pill. And it really is a very exciting time to be in oncology because these molecular treatments and targeted therapies are so effective in helping to prevent progression of disease.
0: What's the best way to support a loved one going through cancer treatment?
1: That's a great question. Uh, Certainly from a psychological standpoint, Many patients need just a friendship and love and transportation to the doctor's offices can be very helpful to patients. It would need to be tailored to the patient and their age and what their needs are. But just being there and supporting the the patients is so helpful to them.
0: Next question. Have you ever seen other non-traditional treatments work when used alongside traditional medicine? like nutrition or Eastern medicine, et cetera?
1: Sure. We always try to work with the patient. We try to use what we call complementary medicine. So anytime a a patient tells me that they're on some herbal medication or they want to try an herbal medication, I'll always ask them to just tell me what they're bringing in so I can research it and make sure that there's no interactions or anything. Certainly, there are some patients who do better than we expect based on what the statistics tell us, and they may be on other complementary therapies that we wouldn't be able to otherwise explain their success. We definitely have seen that.
0: Next question. Do you think we will ever cure cancer?
1: I certainly hope so. Again, as we're getting more and more information about the molecular characteristics of the cancers and finding these treatments that can really hone in on treating the very specific cancer cells, we're getting closer and closer. It's hard to know if we ever will completely cure it, but certainly these days we've been able to find treatments that make cancer more of a chronic disease like high blood pressure and diabetes And patients are living with cancer for years and years longer than we ever expected.
0: When should you get a second opinion? And then they connected the next question. When should someone seek treatment at a major academic center like Sloan Kettering instead of your local hospital?
1: So that's a great question, which being in the community, we definitely see that a lot. For patients who have a very common cancer, such as breast cancer or colon cancer, where there's many things that are known about it, it's not complicated, it's a very straightforward case, then it's not quite as important as getting a second opinion If somebody wishes to seek a second opinion, we would always encourage that and never discourage it. On the other hand, if somebody has a very rare tumor or there's uh, some nuances about the cancer or the tumor that is confusing or unexpected or that we just don't see very often, then certainly they should be treated at a major medical center or a major cancer center such as Sloan Kettering. Also, children, those patients should probably be treated at a a children's hospital that have more facilities and and more support really for not only the patients who have the cancer, but the parents and, and other family members
0: too. Okay. Next question. What makes pancreatic cancer so tough to treat?
1: Pancreatic cancer is really tough because there's not a lot of early signs of pancreatic cancer in many cases. And so it frequently is diagnosed at a very later stage or at a stage where it has already spread and metastasized to other organs. And so in those situations, it's already at stage four in so many patients. We haven't been able to find as many of the targeted treatments that we have, say for lung cancer in patients with pancreatic cancer. So we're using the conventional chemotherapy, which is helpful, and it helps to prolong their, their life and prolong their quality of life, which is most also very important. But it, unfortunately, it it doesn't cure. I just
0: remember from the book, the last lecture by uh, Randy Posh. I think he was a professor out in University of Pittsburgh or, Car- or maybe Carnegie Mellon. He said in his book, if you were going down a list and you were going to circle the one thing you did not want to get, he goes, "I think I circled it." Like when he had can- pancreatic cancer, that's the one you don't want. Yeah. Uh, next question: How often should someone be examined for skin cancer?
1: Skin cancer, that's a great question. I didn't really touch on that, but that's another one of the cancers that we do have screening tests for or or screening exams, especially for somebody who is at a high risk for melanoma, which is the deadly form of skin cancer. They should be screened probably every six months after the age of 50. And these are people who had sunburns as a child or a teenager, people with very fair skin, If certainly if there's a family history of melanoma, they should also be screened with physical exams by the dermatologist
0: every six months. Next question. Are there any daily supplements that could help prevent cancer in the body?
1: If only we had a magic pill that we could give having a diet that's high in fruits and vegetables is definitely helpful. Also a diet that has high calcium and vitamin D helps to prevent colon cancer, especially so those are helpful. But unfortunately, there's no one supplement that we say is the one to prevent can- all cancers.
0: Here's like a two-part question. What is your feeling on the risk and benefit of breast cancer screening? What do you think of the current recommendations for screening for women? Do you agree? Uh, do you think they could be improved?
1: I definitely agree at this point for the recommendations for the average risk of patients with breast cancer to be screened starting at the age of 40 with mammograms. Now, mammograms do give off a little bit of radiation. It's basically x-rays but the little amount of radiation that's in the mammograms is really quite small and there's really very minimal risk of any cancers or leukemia that can develop from the radiation exposure from mammograms. So I, I do recommend and I do agree with the screening mammograms. Actually, one thing I didn't mention before was for women who have dense breasts, as seen on mammograms. And typically those are the younger women who are under the age of 50. If somebody has dense breasts, they should be screened with breast MRIs and those give off no radiation. So that's safer, though of course it is a more intensive test. Those are ones that, that we would recommend. As far as how do we think they could be improved? If somebody could figure out how to do a mammogram without all that compression, that would certainly be, be wonderful.
0: In the span of your clinical career, what has been the most significant breakthrough in cancer research?
1: Right, I think all of the targeted therapies and the molecular therapies that are coming into clinical practice nowadays have really been so exciting. We've also been using these immune checkpoint inhibitors, which are medications that basically help your body use your own immune system to help fight the, the cancers. And we're finding more and more cancers that can respond to these immune checkpoint inhibitors. So that really is just tremendously exciting.
0: The next question, what to do if you miss several screenings, and now the person is too worried and too scared to get one done. They're so far past due and what the heck with it, or I'm just too scared to see what they're going to find. What would you tell that person?
1: Yeah, I I would tell them it's never too late. And there's always something that we can do, even if we do find that we have a breast cancer from the mammogram. In fact, we do see this not infrequently, where women have what's called a neglected breast cancer, where there is a very obvious mass that they feel in their breast, and they're just too afraid to get mammograms and to tell anybody about it. And so frequently, they don't get diagnosed until they're at a much later stage. Even at the later stage, there's always almost always something that, that we can do that can help them, whether it's with their quality of life, or certainly yeah, to help any other symptoms that they might have. So we always try to encourage them to talk to their doctor and get their screenings.
0: So it's never too late. Go get screened. Two questions from the listeners here. A second to the last. How do you know when to leave a condition alone and when to treat aggressively?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And being in a community practice where we see patients who are frequently elderly, this does come up not infrequently, where what's more important to some of these older patients is a quality of life and not necessarily the longevity of life. I always take into account the person's what we call performance status, which is how are they able to function or are, are they able to walk around and do things on their own? Or are they coming from a nursing home and sitting in a wheelchair where they have so many other medical problems that if I were to try giving them chemotherapy, I would be doing more harm than good. It's always a discussion to have. It It is important to know when to offer hospice. To some of these patients, and talk about it with them.
0: You mentioned hospice. How hard is it to lose a long-term patient that maybe you've been treating for a while? What's that like, and how do you get through that as a physician?
1: Yeah, I, it definitely can be tough because some of these patients I've cared for years. In some situations, and I get to know them, and I get to know their families. It, it definitely can be tough. It's reassuring to know that I help them live longer life, a better life. I built those relationships with the family members, but it definitely is tough, especially when we lose long-term patients. Maybe
0: a step before that, how tough is it to give that stage four diagnosis? This is even worse than we thought it was. Like how rough is that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's rough too. Fortunately, there's less and less of that these days as patients do have screenings and as they are diagnosed at earlier stages, but unfortunately especially in young patients who certainly weren't expecting it or weren't having symptoms, it can be a very difficult discussion. I try to talk with them, explain everything and give them hope that there's something I can do for them at whatever point they're at, so that they can help live a better life for as long as they can.
0: Wrapping up here a couple of things we call share your secrets just to get to know you a little bit better. And Going through all that on a daily basis, one of the questions I like to ask podcast guests, you know, with all the stuff you have going on and all the cancers you're treating and all the patients you have, when you need to clear your mind or recharge your body, what do you do?
1: Oh, I I try to make it a priority to exercise. Unfortunately, I, I don't have time too often to go for a run, but if I could get a run in three, four times a week, that it helps to clear my head. I also like to garden. I find gardening actually to be really very gratifying because it's something that I can do. I can take a couple hours and plant some flowers and weed some beds. And then I can look back and say, aha, look what I did today. And I can see it. And it's something concrete. Whereas when I talk to patients, although I know I'm helping them and, and talking with them, it's not quite as concrete. The gardening reminds me that I have things that I can do to make things better. So...
0: There's nothing like getting outside in nature, no matter what you yeah. do. It's just humbling. It resets. It's great. Now, thanks for sharing that. How about is there a book that influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other?
1: As I mentioned, perhaps that first aid book I <laughs> that I had to read to get to get recertified and certified.
0: What advice would you have for that med school student deciding, hey, I want to be an oncologist? <laughs> what advice would you give them?
1: Oh, I would absolutely recommend it. I think it's definitely one of the most exciting and interesting careers that you can have in medicine, especially these days. It's certainly one of the most gratifying when you talk to patients and develop their relationships and make a difference.
0: I'll end with this question here, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Dr. Berman, if you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. I have no idea. I would have to think about that one. I don't know. <laughs>
0: Good stuff. Just to recap, get screened. It's never too late. Get checked. Early treatment leads more options, lead to better outcomes. Dr. Jessica Berman, I'd like to thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us and sharing your wisdom. I think you helped a lot of people today. If people were looking for you and your practice online, where could they find you?
1: Yeah. Joe, thank you so much for having me. This has really been a lot of fun. I am at Abington Hematology Oncology Associates. It's a part of US Oncology. Our website is www.cancerpa.net. You can look us up if a patient is in need of an oncologist. All of our information is there.
0: Dr. Jessica Berman, hope to have you back on the podcast again.
1: Yes. Thank you so much, Joe. This was really great. Thanks for having me.